Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would get us ready for that day. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts now through your word so that when we see Jesus face to face, we will be ready and full of joy. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have read the Harry Potter series or seen the movies, uh, one of the most beloved characters is this monster giant of a man named Hagrid. Uh, He is a gentle giant and also has a complete blind spot for animals and spiders that any objective person would say, why are you keeping that as a pet? But Hagrid believes that they're so adorable that he can't turn them away. And one thing in particular I actually, I thought of it this morning, and I didn't look up the name of the spider. I I need a Harry Potter expert to tell me the name of the spider, but I I don't know if we got one here this morning. So Hagrid keeps this adorable little spider that was little when he got it, but it grew to be a massive monster of a beast and nearly kills the hero of the series. And I mention that because I think often... We have things in our lives that seem adorable and small and cute and harmless. And to us, even as they grow to a massive size, we never think, man, that's a problem. But anyone else coming alongside us could look at it and say, this has got to stop. This is not okay. In fact, in the passage of scripture I read this morning from 1 Corinthians 5, there has never been a culture where it's okay to hook up with your dad's wife, even if she's your stepmom. The the only thing that maybe I should mention, probably she was about the same age as the kid. But we don't even know that for sure. Uh, Culturally, it was not weird for older men to marry younger wives, and so it's conceivable that this guy was the same age as his dad's wife, but it was never okay. And what happened is that the church, magnifying the grace of Jesus, said, you know what? We're not here to talk about your personal private life. We're here to talk about Jesus. And so they welcomed this couple into their their midst, thinking that they were being loving, but Paul comes alongside them and says, no, marriage is holy and sacred. You, You cannot violate a marriage covenant and then in the name of grace, just act like that's okay. And just to make sure that, that we're not just picking on one particular type of morality, he includes several other things that we would be tempted to overlook. Like he says, don't associate with a drunkard or a swindler. And you know, we might think of, like, we would probably never label somebody as a drunkard. We'd say, you know, maybe, maybe he has a little bit too much every now and then. Uh, but we would just, we're not comfortable naming people by their faults. So we may tolerate a sin in someone when we should loving come alongside them and say, hey, this is destroying you and your family. What are you doing? And there comes a point where if the person will not listen, the only recourse is to say, well, I'm sorry, but, but you cannot remain a part of our church in the same standard. Paul says to, to treat that person like an outsider. Now, I, I want to tell you the rest of the story because Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, where the church read 1 Corinthians And they were kind of freaked out and afraid because of the message that Paul gave them. And so they followed up. They they said, all right, we're going to do it. And and they confronted this young man and said, hey, 
if you maintain this relationship and there's no repentance, you cannot be a member of our church in good standing, period. And they kicked him out. And then when he repented, they wouldn't let him back in. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians and said, hey, there has been forgiveness on behalf of God in Christ. You can't exclude this guy. Welcome him back. And so the church is not a place that condemns people, but it is a place that calls people to holy living. And the same sort of thing happens in our text today, but we only have about three verses that deal with it. So I wanted to read 1 Corinthians because it gives us a a more complete picture of what Paul is doing when he writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Timothy. We're still in chapter 1. I'm going to be preaching on verses 18 through 20, and again, My title for this text is Faithful Soldier or Shipwrecked Sailor. And Paul's prayer and encouragement to young Timothy is to be a faithful soldier. And part of encouraging him to be a faithful soldier is warning him of the danger of his own faith being shipwrecked. And so I want to read our text this morning. And then take us through it slowly. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So this morning, my message has two points. Number one, be faithful. And I want to talk about being faithful and what it means to be faithful for a minute. And then number two, be warned. Be warned. There is danger when we are not faithful. So to begin with, I want to remind you the reason Paul is writing this letter. He tells us very plainly, you can see it in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, meaning everything in this letter, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is giving him instructions that are pretty broad about church life, his responsibilities as a pastor, how the people of the church are to behave towards each other in church, and even how families and households are to behave outside of the church. And his goal is that the church of Jesus Christ would attract people to Jesus because of the hope that they have and the way they live out their faith. The first job that Paul gave Timothy, we saw a few weeks ago, oddly enough, was to encourage some people who were part of his church to not teach. He says, don't allow people who, who claim to be experts in the law to mislead the congregation in what it means to follow God. So tell some people not to teach. Then he says, know that the law is good. He's not saying they're wrong for studying the law or teaching people about the law, but know that the law is good, but only 
when it leads to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, sometimes the church is good about teaching its rules to the culture, but they are bad about showing that we don't keep our own rules. What really binds us together is the mercy and the grace that we find in Jesus Christ, that his blood cleanses us of our sins. So the message is not so much, these are God's rules, do your best. The message is, these are God's rules and all of us have broken them. And Jesus Christ has died for our sins and been raised to give us new life. So as we encourage one another to holy living, we remind one another of the grace of Jesus Christ. And you cannot change either part of that message without being unfaithful. You must remember God's holiness. And you must remember the grace that is making us more and more holy as we follow after Christ. And this is the task that Paul has given young Timothy to guard this message of grace and to guard the goodness of the law. And then that flows and erupts into Paul's personal testimony and Paul marveling at the grace of God that saved him. And he says, God saved me although I was the worst of all sinners so that Every single person who hears the message of Jesus would have hope. Because what they can do is they can point to Paul and say, man, I'm not as bad as that guy. And if God saved that guy, he can save me. So last week, I told a bunch of stories about people who found the grace of Jesus. And they were kind of fantastic, crazy stories. Uh, Some people had visions, and and I believe that they really had those visions. I believe that God reached into their lives in a miraculous way, much like he reached into the life of the Apostle Paul. I talked about an atheist Marxist revolutionary, an alcoholic National Guardsman, a New Age hippie, and a moral Mormon who had a vision of Jesus being worshipped. And I did that, Because I wanted to say God is saving people the same way he saved the Apostle Paul. That God is still at work saving people by grace today as they believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, who died for our sins and rose again. Paul tells his testimony and says, I was the worst of sinners. God had mercy on me so that he can give hope to everyone else. So imagine for a moment, That you're young Timothy or or a young woman who worked alongside the Apostle Paul. And you're going with him from church to church. And you've probably heard Paul's story maybe a thousand times. He tells it everywhere he goes. And the guy conducts church services every day of the week, probably twice a day. He's got an incredible work ethic. And so you've heard Paul give his testimony again and again and again. And it's super dramatic. He tells this crazy story how he was a murderer. He saw a bright light and he heard the voice of Jesus and fell to the ground. God literally blinded him so that he could not see and he had to depend on someone else to lead him around. Took him to a man named Ananias who prayed for him. And Paul said, when he prayed for me, baptized me, literal scales fell off of his eyes. Paul said that that they were something like fish scales, fell from his eyes and his sight was restored and he started to preach the good news about Jesus that just days before he had hated and tried to stop. 
So imagine you're sitting next to, 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 to Paul as he tells this story. The people you're with have never heard it before. And they're just engrossed in the supernatural drama of how God changed this man from a murderer and a hater of Christianity and Christ to a preacher who's become a very loving person, a Jew who loves Gentiles, who now takes a genuine interest and love in everyone who meets because he wants them to know Jesus. And so they're marveling at this transformation. This guy who's obviously Jewish, obviously a Pharisee, is all of a sudden very loving to people who are not like him. And then... They turn to Timothy, and they say, Timothy, man, what's your story? How do you become a Christian? And Timothy goes, well, my mom and my grandma taught me the Bible. One day we heard about Jesus, and we all believed, and I was baptized right away. You can imagine, everybody else is looking at him going, so so have you ever killed anybody? you ever had a problem with alcohol? Like, is, is, is there anything else in this story? He's like, nope, that's it. And his story's super boring. There's, there's nothing exciting there. In many ways, it seems like the grace of God to Timothy didn't have to do much. Because Timothy was a good little church kid. He believed in Jesus as soon as he heard about Jesus. And the whole church recognized that this young man loved the scriptures and ought to teach the scriptures. And so they commissioned him to ministry. He has no drama in his life. And so you can imagine, he might sometimes feel like, how can I be used of God the way somebody like Paul is? If I call myself the chief of sinners, people are going to be laughing and saying, like, you're just, you're sheltered. You're kind of naive. <laughs> like, you don't know. And in a way, they're not wrong. So Paul writes this letter to young Timothy. Many people think he was probably a little bit timid to encourage him that you don't have to have some crazy testimony to be used of God in ministry. In fact, in a single sentence, let me put it this way. The gospel power is in the message of Jesus, not in the sins of the sinner. Okay, the gospel power is in the message of Jesus, not in the sins of the sinner. And sometimes those dramatic stories help because it helps you understand the power and the depth of God's grace. But it's so important to remember that the real story we're telling is the true story of Jesus, the Son of God, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And that's true of church kids, and that's true of people who have never darkened the door of the church. We all need the same grace of Jesus. And as I was talking to, to my prayer group on Wednesday mornings, Alan Highfield mentioned Sonia Harris. Some of you guys remember Pastor Jack, who was here for 34 years. His daughter, Sonia, was a good little church kid. She grew up in church. She's a pastor's daughter. And she gave a public testimony once in church and said, you know what? I don't have a crazy story. And maybe some of you feel like I don't need the grace of God because I haven't messed up in a big way. But she looked at the whole church and she said, none of you know what's in here. And I know that I need the grace of God. 
And so whether you have this crazy story and have messed up in obvious ways, or whether you seem like a pretty good person, Sonia's testimony is true. All of us need the grace of God. And Timothy would have been the first to say, I need the grace of God. My story is not, you can follow my example and not need Jesus. That's heresy. Nobody is good apart from God. All of us need the forgiveness and love that God has offered us in the cross of Jesus. And so Paul's message to young Timothy is, be faithful. And he gives him a couple specific commands. Verse 18 through the first half of 19, this charge I entrust to you. And what he means is the charge of preaching the gospel boldly, the charge of protecting the truth of God's word in the context of the church. That charge might mean saying to somebody, hey, you can't teach this, or hey, I would ask you, please not share videos like that. Those people are not faithful teachers of the word of God. That's not helpful for our body. And sometimes that causes conflict. Paul says, young Timothy, be bold. He actually says, wage the good warfare. He reminds him of prophecies that are previously made about him. And in a context of a church service, they would have gathered around him and laid hands on him and said, we believe that Jesus is calling you to serve the church as a preacher. We believe that you are called to public ministry. And so people would have testified this truth into his life and prayed for him and commissioned him. And he's saying, hey, maybe you don't have a powerful testimony like I have, but remember, God set you apart and called you to serve. Remember these prophecies that God has made about you in the context of your church. And as you remember them, and as you keep this charge, this command to faithfully preach the gospel, he says, wage the good warfare. And I want to talk about that for a second. But he says, you wage this good warfare in two ways. Number one, holding the faith and having a good conscience. Holding the faith and having a good conscience. Sometimes churches shy away from warfare talk. The the end of Ephesians talks about how all of us are in a spiritual war. That we have an enemy, the devil, who is very real, who hates God and hates anyone trying to follow the Lord. And he will try to destroy your life. And he'll do it in any way he can. If he can deceive you into thinking that you're a good person like Paul was before Christ. And he can keep you from believing you need the grace of Jesus. He'll do it. And that's just as satanic as any other temptation that the devil has ever laid out. The Bible is clear that we are in a war. But let me read you this from 2 Corinthians 10. Paul says, We are not waging war according to the flesh. We don't use guns. We don't use knives or grenades. We don't use rhetorical tactics where we tear down people we disagree with. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I read that because I want you to know that as the Bible talks about waging good warfare, It's done with weapons like the word of God. It's done with prayer. 
And it's done with obedience to the word of God so that you put it in practice. So that as we see that the church is responsible to hold itself accountable, we actually do that. And so when we see sin in in, in my life and in your life, we don't just turn a blind eye to it, but we lovingly come alongside and say, hey, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? How can I love you? Because we have to deal with this. It's part of waging good warfare. He says specifically, Timothy, wage good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. And what I think he means by holding faith in a nutshell, is remembering the gospel of Jesus. It's small. You can say it in 10 words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. I love that definition of the gospel. It's so easy to remember. And yet, in that comes everything from Genesis to Revelation. That Christ is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied about and led towards. And so when he says, hold to this faith, he does mean the gospel, but you can't have the gospel without the rest of the faith. And so he's saying, young Timothy, be faithful to all of the scriptures. Never forget your core mission is to call people to the grace and love that are in Christ Jesus. Don't tolerate sin in the name of a false kind of grace, and don't you dare fail to extend the mercy that God is offering everyone because you think that you've got it together. Be faithful to your core mission of preaching this gospel and make sure that you have a good conscience yourself. Don't ever be a pastor who's a hypocrite. Don't ever be a pastor that says one thing to your people and does another thing privately. Make sure that the message that you preach resonates deeply in your own heart and that your life is consistent with that message. Saints, I want to pause and ask you to pray for me because this is not easy. There are weeks where I feel like, how can I possibly preach as I've got my own messes and problems and I have to remember the grace of God for myself And I have to be willing to be vulnerable and honest about my own faults and flaws and sins. And yet at the same time, remember the grace of God that qualifies me for ministry. And I would just ask that you would pray that God would help me do what Paul is telling Timothy right now. This command to be faithful, to wage the good warfare, is also coupled with a warning. So he begins by saying, be faithful. He ends by saying, be warned. And I want to read again the second half of verse 19 and 20. Paul says, by rejecting this. By rejecting what? Well, by rejecting the gospel and the faith that Paul preached. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he mentions two people by name, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now that's... Sounds horribly extreme. What on earth is he talking about? Is he, is he like placing some sort of curse on them? That, that they're going to be demonically oppressed like some sort of horror movie? No, that's not what he's talking about at all. You want to know how this is understood biblically? Well, remember the passage that I read in 1 Corinthians. Biblically, when you are excluded from church membership... That is taking you outside of the embassy of Jesus' kingdom, okay? So Jesus is the king of the universe, right? 
But right now, he is not reigning in the same way he will when he returns. Right now, every church is a little embassy of the kingdom of Jesus, and we are in enemy territory. The Bible calls Satan the God of this world. And so if you are outside of the church, you are in Satan's territory and domain. If you are not in good fellowship with a local church, you are functioning outside the embassy of God. And so that's why both in this passage and in 1 Corinthians, Paul says when the church exercises discipline and someone will not repent, and he says treat them like an unbeliever, They are going into the domain of Satan. And the purpose is not to curse them. We we don't have that authority. We can't do that. Only God pronounces final judgment. But the purpose is to drive them back to repentance. And the sovereign God who loves us and gave his son for us will see to that. That is not our responsibility. That is God's responsibility. And he may use pain and heartache and trials to push that person back into the fellowship of the church. Or perhaps in time, they will discover that they were not genuinely believers at all and they will be lost. The danger is there. And Paul is telling young Timothy, it's not loving to allow someone who continues in sin to be part of your church in good standing. And when you give up the gospel, you run the risk of shipwrecking your own faith and the faith of the church. Friends, I told a bunch of stories last week about people coming to Christ. I could tell a ton of stories this week about people walking away from Christ. People that I have loved their ministries. And and I think of one guy, and and I'm going to... Be like Paul for a minute and and use names because I think it's helpful. There's a a Christian musician, or I should say he was a Christian musician, uh, by the name of Derek Webb. Uh, He's in a band called Cademan's Call in the 90s, and and he was really edgy. Um, And Cademan's Call was like, we can't write that way. We are not an edgy band. And he was like, okay, I'm going solo. And he wrote a couple albums, and they were kind of like Bob Dylan-esque. They were great folk music, had great music, and also in the spirit of folk music, they could be punchy, and his lyrics were just fantastic. And I remember as a young college kid just loving his music. And about five years ago, uh, he committed adultery, and as he committed adultery, he said, to my knowledge, I don't know that his church actually did put this in practice. I don't know that his Elders sat down with him and said, you're in sin, this is a problem, you can't be here anymore. I don't know the details of that part of the story. What I do know is, shortly after he committed adultery, he started writing music that hated the gospel of Jesus. He's written two albums now. One is about a a deconversion, and he has this line that, that to me is the most heartbreaking that I could ever imagine writing. He's addressing God, and he says this. He says, either you're not real, or I'm not chosen, and either way, my heart is broken. He firmly believes that he is outside of the grace of God, if God even exists. And he openly preaches a message that the church is nothing special, and that Jesus probably wasn't even real. That's a story of a man who once knew his theology and wrote songs that were excellent, had a moral failure, and now openly 
rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. His new albums are full of hopelessness and searching. There's nothing solid to be offered. And I wish that that were the only story that I could tell. But there are so many others. Even in some of our stuff that, that we've watched as a church, you know, some of you remember the Bible Project videos? Uh, they're, they're great, funny, hilarious videos that teach the Bible very, very well. Two of the guys that did music for those videos, uh, actually a lot of people know them. They have an enormously popular YouTube channel, but at the same time, a lot of people don't realize they got their start in Christian media. They were super funny working for Phil Vischer, helping people know the Bible. And Rhett and Link went and started a podcast that has millions of views. They've been on The Tonight Show. They're very successful from a standpoint. And just last year, they did two podcasts where they talked about how each of them had decided that Christianity isn't true. It's not real. And they walked away from the faith very publicly. They are shipwrecking their faith because they no longer believe that the grace of God is real. I could mention Joshua Harris, who was in videos that we've played at our church because I took us through New City Catechism. Joshua Harris was helping explain ideas in the New City Catechism. And since that time, he's walked away from his wife and his family and said, I no longer believe in Jesus. I don't know what's real or true, but I'm out. The weird sort of silver lining is that this is not a new problem. It's heartbreaking, it's tragic, but Paul tells Timothy, wage the good warfare, hold faith in a good conscience, because by rejecting this faith, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. Now friends, there is some real hope in that verse. The hope that's here is that as the church faithfully pushes out people in unrepentant sin and people who are distorting and perverting the gospel of grace, as the church does what God has instructed the church to do, there is hope that some will come back. You can see the hope in this verse when Paul says, the reason that I handed them over to Satan, not because I hate them, I'm hoping they're going to be destroyed. The reason that I've done this is I'm hoping that they will learn to not blaspheme. That they will no longer speak against God and speak against Christ. But if we maintain fellowship with them, they'll never learn that because they'll feel like it's fine. And so Paul, out of love for these two young men and out of love for the church, said, you're out. You can't function in ministry. You can't serve in this capacity. And it's his prayer that that kind of discipline would bring them back to the fold. The good news in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians is that it worked in their church. That the young man that was sleeping with his father's wife said, oh shoot, this is wrong. And they stopped. And Paul, out of love for this young man, welcomed him back into the church and instructed the church, do not dare treat him like a second-class citizen. He received the same grace of God that saves you. He has repented. He is your brother. We actually don't know much about the young lady. We don't know if she was also a believer. We don't know. But the grace of God is extended to all. And when people repent, we are to welcome them back. 
And when we see people walk away, our hope is that they would come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read about big stories of people walking away, it's not the end. It's totally possible that maybe even this year, maybe 10 years from now, who knows? They may come back to the grace of God and preach the good news of Jesus again. That's our hope. That's what we pray for. That's what we long for. But before I finish, the purpose of this message is for us to be warned. And so the question is, how do we prevent this kind of turning away? How do we be the faithful soldier instead of the shipwrecked sailor? How do you wage this warfare? Some of this he's going to discuss later in this book. That's why this is such a precious book. But it explains why we do some things in our Sunday morning services, like faithfully read a lot of scripture. I always try to choose a passage that I'm not preaching on to go along with my message because I want us to know that the whole Bible has this agreement. Even if I don't say much about the scripture reading, I want you to hear it. And here's why. Because in this book, Paul is going to tell young Timothy, be devoted to the public reading of scripture. This is in chapter 3, verse 13. To exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The end of that verse answers the question that we have. How do we avoid being a shipwrecked sailor? Well, we can be saved as we persist in the public reading of Scripture and as we are devoted to teaching and to exhortation. Exhortation is when you take a truth of Scripture and you say boldly to someone, your life is not lined up with this truth. You better change. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. If that's true, exhortation is more personal than just preaching to a room full of people it's being willing to sit down with a saint and say hey i love you and god loves you i'm telling you you need to make some changes in your life and that process has the ability to help keep us faithful it's how god works it's not us working it's how god works through his word And so later in the book, Paul describes in more specific detail how to wage this warfare, how to be faithful to the gospel and the message of the faith, how to have a clean conscience. But I think here in this passage, Paul is especially saying, saints, remember how God has worked in your life. Remember your own testimony, how you came to Jesus the person who shared the gospel with you. And then remember those moments when God worked so clearly that you could say, God did this. God not only saved me, maybe he moved you into the job that's allowed you to be a blessing to the people around you, some of you for years. I remember talking to Kent Barnes once and he was talking about how as a young person, he just wondered how to find the best jobs and where God would have them go. And he said, looking forward, it was very hard to figure out. But looking backwards, he could say with confidence that God had moved him every step of the way. Friends, for me, I actually, I grabbed this from my office this morning. 
Because uh, I've told my testimony before how I was saved at a very young age. And God has worked in my life at different points through different people. I had little Sunday school ladies, even when I was very small, I was odd, and they would say things to me like, I think you're going to be used in the church someday. And I was like, I don't know, lady. I, like, it was a weird thing to me at the time. And I, I have often wondered, did they say that to everyone? Like, is that just like standard little old lady church thing? I, I don't know. Maybe they did, but, but I wanted to, to remind you of, of this day. I, I have this picture in my office uh, this was from 2016, June of 2016, almost exactly five years ago now. And, and this is one of my predecessors and his predecessor, Pastor Ed and Pastor Jack. Um, I, I jokingly thought I was going to get a tattoo of a number 19, maybe on my shoulder, because I'm the 19th pastor of this church. Uh, for a while, my father-in-law kept calling me number 19. He's just, no name anymore, you're number 19. But this kind of encourages me. This, and I know this is a small picture, and I'm like, like some of you are like 50 feet away, so I'm just going to tell you what's in the picture. You can look at it later if you want to. This is the entire congregation around me and Lauren praying for us, saying, we believe that God has called you to this church. Wage the good warfare. There were probably five or ten different people who prayed, and they remember this day. Now, now, it's a mixture because some people are no longer part of our church. They haven't left the faith, but they've left this congregation. And so there's this strange mixture. This is a sweet, beautiful, and awesome day. And yet, the church is not as united as I wish it were. And so when Paul says, remember the prophecies that were previously made about you and how to wage the good warfare, I leave this in my office because some days it's hard to remember. But the command is there for us. Remember how God has worked in your life, how the church has come around you at different times. And Paul is writing this to a young pastor. But friends, there's applications for every person here. Remember the person who led you to the Lord. Remember how God has moved in your life and has changed you. And friends, if you can't say that you know Jesus as your Savior... I want to end by giving you this invitation. Believe and be saved. His blood will cleanse you from your sins. You will be part of this body of Christ and together we will encourage one another either until the Lord calls us home to heaven or until Jesus returns. You can't live the Christian life on your own and you can't live life on your own without Christ. So if you're not sure if you're saved, you're welcome to come talk to me today. If we have to do it over the phone, we can do it over the phone. I'll make myself totally available. I want to help you know how you can know the Lord Jesus with confidence and joy. And saints who are here, who are saved, let's encourage one another to be faithful. Let's be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, but let's also remember the stories of how God has worked with all of his people together, how he has saved us and called us and made us a family. Would you pray with me? Father, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And with knowledge that are those who have shipwrecked their faith, we ask that you would hold us fast, that you would keep us in your love, that we would be faithful to exercise your discipline, but also your mercy. 
Father, I pray that we would remember your grace and your love, that we would never doubt your goodness. And it's entrusting in you and your word that we ask all these things, praying in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. One of the things I did not mention is this. Uh, if, if you are a believer in Jesus, you don't need to be a member of our church. We practice an open communion. Remembering the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus is another thing that reminds us of the grace of God and the faith that saves us. And so in just a moment, I'm going to give you some instructions. I like to minimize distractions as best we can. And I think this is a moment that is so sacred. Before I pray, before I read scripture, I want to ask you, go ahead and grab, if you can, that little piece of plastic, peel it back, so you can get your little communion wafer out. We're going to look forward to the day when we don't use these anymore. But we will still keep communion until Jesus comes back, one way or another. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, I would encourage you to just wait uh, and become a believer first. It's good to be baptized before you take communion. And so if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, I'd love to help you know him. We can talk about that later, but if you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to take communion with us, and I want to point you to a couple of passages of scripture before we remember the body and blood of the Lord. We do this because Jesus commanded everyone who follows him to remember his sacrifice. Scripture says, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And the Bible says, That God demonstrated his love for us and while we were yet sinners, Ephesians actually says enemies, that Christ died for us. We weren't even his friends, we were his enemies. And God loved us so much that Jesus Christ died for his enemies to make us his friends, his family. And so I want to remind you based on the command of Jesus, how we are to take this. And I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul received these instructions directly from Jesus and every church around the world, whether you're in China or Hawaii or here in Holly, every church around the world remembers the body and blood of the Lord according to these instructions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, before we take, I want to pray for us in just a second. But the reason that Jesus gave his body on the cross for us is that we could not pay for our own sins. And so God did it for us. And so I want to invite you to pray and to worship with me as we remember the body of Jesus. Would you pray? Our Father in heaven, We are here to praise you for your love. When we are hopeless and discouraged by our own failures and sins, you remain faithful. And the sacrifice of Jesus is more than sufficient to cover all of our sins. And when we worry that you are angry, you are abundant in love. Remind us of your mercy, Father, in this moment. And I pray that you'd bless us as we obey the command of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me read the verse again and then we'll take take the bread. 
When Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord Jesus together. The scripture says that that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. We talk about cancer being in remission. You've used radiation or surgery or whatever it is to get it out of your body so that you can begin to heal and be healthy. Well, the scripture says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Your sins remain in you. They remain on you. But through the blood of Jesus, your sins can not only go into remission, they can be gone forever. And so we remember that Jesus shed his blood for us on the cross. I like to pray for us, read some scripture, and then we'll drink a little bit of juice that represents his blood. Let's pray. Father, we were powerless to wash away our own sins. Adam and Eve tried to use fig leaves to cover up, and and it was insufficient. It did not work. And we may try to hide our own sins from each other and even from you. But you and your mercy have provided the blood of Jesus to wash them away completely and to make us clean. And so we praise you and ask for your help that we would never forget the blood that you provided for us. I pray that we would have the confidence and even the joy of knowing complete peace and forgiveness through his blood. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's remember the blood of Jesus together. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember together.